0: Well, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. My name's Brad, if we haven't met. one of the elders and lead pastor here, and it's good to be back with you. I have been uh, away from teaching the last couple of weeks, and we were actually at the lake last weekend, and um, we were, uh, I grew up in, in Alabama, and realized last weekend we were on Lake Martin and just acted like a bunch of kids tubing and Realize it's been 25 years since I've been back on that lake, and it's literally like 10, 15 minutes from where I grew up, and so uh, I want to say thanks to, to Jared and to Chris for their teaching this last couple of weeks. Um, we are wrapping up a series today that all summer long, we've been looking at grace, and we've called it a summer of grace, and Today, we are ending with a sermon that I have entitled, "Grace to Persevere." Grace to Persevere." Um, I went into this week having some other plans for this week for the sermon today, and um, they kind of got laid aside, and I just as I prayed, I just sensed the Lord saying, "I'll, I'll have something for you." And so I, I just didn't do any planning um, earlier. I've studied this week, but, but earlier I didn't do any planning. And so on Monday, um, you're probably going to recognize this text if you've been doing the CBR journal reading. We, many of you know we're together using the Community Bible Reading Journal in order to read through the New Testament this year and read through a third of the Old Testament. If you don't have one of those, we have several. We'd love to hook you up. Um, but you'll recognize this passage from the CBR Journal's reading on Monday. It's John 11. So you can turn there to John 11. And as I thought about this passage, Ben and I actually talked about it as we ran on Monday morning. So, so Ben may say I've already heard all of this. But um, as I thought about this passage, I thought what a key passage... For us, not only to understand God's grace, but to lean into all that God desires to do in and through our lives, it's been kind of a crazy week for um, for our family. Our oldest son started a, a new full-time job, and uh, we're really proud of him uh, working down. At a Baptist College of Health Sciences. And so he's working down there with environmental services. So we had all of that going on this week. He's kind of working a second shift. And then on Tuesday, we had a full disclosure meeting um, for a young man who is in foster care that we've been advocating for him for the last nine months now. Jumping through a lot of hoops. And uh, that meeting went really well. He's almost 12 years old. He was born in Haiti and so we've got all that going on. And then there's all this weird building stuff going on with, uh, with Trinity Methodists. And when I say weird, I mean that in a good way. You guys know that we have been praying and seeking the Lord for His, His favor in regards to space. Sometimes we have enough adult space. Sometimes we're out of adult space. We rarely, if ever, have enough kids space. And God has... Seemingly given us favor with the new owner of the historic uh, Trinity Methodist on Evergreen. It's a much larger uh, sanctuary. There's eight classrooms that are underneath the sanctuary that we would have access to during the week. So we had another good meeting with him this week. And we just invite you. uh, My hope is that we could get a lease solidified in the next 30 days. And so we just invite you to continue praying with us in that process. Because that's not just something that the elders are called to, that that our faith would grow and that God would call us to pray about it. But I think He's calling our whole church family to pray towards that. But as I think about that particular space on Evergreen, and as I look at it, God has drawn my heart over the last few weeks, surprisingly, not so much toward the space or toward the building, but to think in a broader context about Midtown and about Memphis. And God has drawn my heart toward answering this question what would it be like if my people really sought me? What would it be like if we sought the Lord for renewal and spiritual awakening and what some people would even call revival? One of my buddies, Chuck Gaswin, he's kind of a, a dad and a, and a mentor to a lot of our Soma church pastors. He, he did a little tour where he was going through and meeting with all the Soma pastors in the southeast. And he and I had breakfast uh, Thursday morning. And he just challenged me, like, let's go after the Lord with all our hearts that in our lives, in our day and time, that we might see God move in a way that's so much more than what we can produce. That we can only look back and say it was by grace alone. Well, all of that to set this passage up. In John 11, I believe this is a key passage for Christians because I want to seek to answer the question today, what do you do when God lets you down? What do you do when God lets you down? Because for many of us, I believe that we will not seek after spiritual awakening, that we will not seek the Lord for renewal if we don't believe that God is powerful. If we don't believe that God is alive and at work. And for many of us, as we look at this story, the truth is that we all experience disappointments in life. Jobs end and circumstances don't work out and things break. But what do you do when God calls you to labor for Him and the ministry that He calls you to seems to die? Or to fail? Or to lack fruit? Or maybe there seems lots of sacrifice on your part and very little evidence of God's grace. From what you can determine. What do you do? Because that's where we find Mary's experience today in this text. She is disappointed and sad and angry toward God. And it's real. And, And I think that for us, this story is so powerful in John 11. Because we all experience it whether we're willing to admit it or not. You know, whether we would use just Christian colloquialisms and phrases and and tend to dismiss our hurt, we all experience times because risk and faith go hand in hand. Chris talked about that last week. And so we all experience times when God seems to fail us. When God seems to leave us in the desert alone. When God seems... To leave us dry and thirsty and hurting. And that's Mary's story. So I want to look at it today and try to answer this question. What do you do when God seems to let you down? Look with me at John chapter 11. We're just going to peruse this story and see some truths God has for us. Look in verse 1. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The context of this story, we're talking about Mary and Martha. Many of you know the story of Mary and Martha. And if you don't, let me just read it to you from Luke 10. It's just just a few short verses. Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read you verses 38 through 42. Luke 10, I'll get there in a second. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Mary welcomed him into her house. She had a sister, I'm sorry, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Most of us know this story. Many of you have heard it before. Martha, Martha, Mary's chosen the better thing, it won't be taken away. And so we see Mary as a worshiper. But I wanted to give you that context because in this story, Mary seems to have left her place as a worshiper. We don't see Mary with that same type of sitting at Jesus' feet and worshiping Him. And I wonder if maybe for some of us there has been a time in our lives, as we look back, where we came to know the Lord and we chose what was best. We chose to be a worshiper. We chose the wise thing. But there's a shift that's taken place. And the shift for Mary is that her brother Lazarus is ill. And so they send word to Jesus. They say, hey, Jesus, your good friend, Lazarus, the one that you love, he is ill. And Jesus hears this. He hears clearly that Lazarus is ill, but yet still alive. It's very clear in the story that Jesus understands the context. But something very strange takes place. If you read verse... Six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What kind of friend does that? Like, what kind of friend hears that you need help and that you need assistance and it, that it's an emergency and that you have the resources and the power that are needed to bring reconciliation and you stay two days longer? Who does that? Have you ever had moments in your own experience with God when it seems that God does the very opposite of what He should do? Let's just get real personal. Maybe you're single and God has called you to a little church plant to labor in the city where there are mainly families and God doesn't seem to deliver a spouse. What do you do? Let's get real personal. Maybe you're married and God calls you to move to a hard place and, and, and you're fine with the sacrifice until you realize the effect is having on your kids and you wonder if you have made a mistake. Been there, done that. What do you do when, like my friends TJ and Gina in Georgia who planted a Soma church and they poured their blood and sweat and tears in their hearts and they gave it everything They had that they poured into that church plant. And it just wasn't enough. And they had to shut it down. And it was gut-wrenching. I was with TJ over this summer. It was gut-wrenching. He was physically sick over it. What do you do? Because those are the real-life stories. And Mary is in a real-life story. What do you do when it seems as if Jesus fails to show up? In this story, we are reminded of a very difficult yet valuable lesson. When Jesus waits, we have to be reminded that Lazarus is not the main character in this story. And neither are you or I. God is. And in the same way that we are not the main character in our stories, we learn the first valuable lesson Suffering for Jesus leads to glory. Make no mistake about it. The Bible teaches this clearly. That suffering for Jesus, not maybe, not sometimes, always leads to glory. Now that sounds great when I say that. But that's kind of, it sounds also like pastoral talk. Like what does that mean? Suffering for Jesus leads to glory. Like what is glory? Glory. What I mean by that is that suffering for Jesus always leads us to a place in which we see the glory of God revealed, in which we see the beauty of God, in which we are overwhelmed by who God is, and even by His goodness to us. There are times in our lives in which suffering becomes an opportunity for God to reveal His power, His love. His faithfulness. Suffering is a key part of God's plan in revealing His kingdom to a lost world. But here's the problem. When we forget that we are not not the main characters of the story. When we forget that this book is for us but that it's not primarily about us. When we forget that most valuable truth then there's a danger. There's a danger that just like Mary and just like Martha and just like so many, that we would begin to struggle with cynicism and apathy. So many Christians fall into the danger of growing cynical. One of the, one of the things that we talk about as church planners and pastors is we say that it's really hard to reach a culture that's now completely post-Christian, particularly if you live in an urban environment. There's no mistake about that. It's completely post-Christian and secular in almost every way. And pastors will oftentimes say that the culture is just so cynical. And I disagree. I think the church is so cynical. I think the church has become so cynical that we've stopped growing That we live as if Jesus can save us, but that he's really powerless to make much of a difference. And so we live for him one day a week for a few hours. But Christianity becomes powerless to impact our community. And for many Christians, they don't stop praying, but their prayers mainly revolve around their families and their needs and their desires, and their emergencies. And they rarely see God's power because they are living in such cynical mindsets that they're largely living dependent upon their own power. And not only do they fall into cynicism, but we also fall into apathy. And apathy leads just towards a missional drift in our lives in which With apathy, we completely forget that God has saved us and that He's redeemed us and that He's called us out and given us gifts and called us to be part of His story that He is writing and that He desires to use us. And we just kind of become content to serve others and to do a few good deeds in order to convince ourselves that maybe we're good people. But for the most part, the gospel becomes anemic and vanilla and just like religion. Just something that we go through the motions out of tradition. Mary has fallen into a very cynical and apathetic mindset. But, let me say this. If we trust in Jesus... If we believe His promises, and we're going to see this in this story, if we believe His promises, we can walk in obedience, even through the toughest of suffering, even through the toughest of circumstances, and know that He will be glorified in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our suffering. If you don't believe me, look at John 20, uh, chapter 12, just the next chapter over. Look at what Jesus reminds us of in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so we can ca- take comfort in our suffering for Jesus' sake, in dying to ourselves, and in living for Jesus. Because in serving Jesus, he promises that the Father will honor us. Now, that's, that's easy to say, and it's harder to live. And that's what Mary and Martha are experiencing. Pick up in verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. The context here uh, is that Jesus has been in in the state of Judea throughout the previous five chapters. And the leaders in Jerusalem are ready to stone him and kill him. And they've they've tried multiple times. Barely escaped Jerusalem with his life. And now he wants to go back. And the disciples are all over the place. I mean, they are all over the place in this text. And in this, we see, secondly, that suffering for Jesus actually leads to belief. Suffering for Jesus leads to belief. Now, the disciples, they're, they're all over the place. They're scared to death. They're fearful for their lives. And so they're just overwhelmed. So most of them are in a state of flight or freeze. They just, they're overwhelmed. But then, so that's most of the disciples. And then Thomas shows up. You know, Thomas is like, he's all over the place. Thomas, he's like, let's go die. So he's he's ready to go unnecessarily just fight. And I don't know that there's a better example of Christians on mission today than, than this passage. Yeah, let's go change the city. Let's go see Jesus impact the world. We're going to show up and we're going to just in a a moment like Thomas, we're just going to see lives changed and and we're going to be the superheroes. And what usually happens? I mean, we've been seeking for eight years to establish a community in a part of town That over and over again, I kept hearing the same words when when I told people, hey, we're going to plant in Midtown. Ooh, that's really hard soil. Ooh, that's really rocky soil. Ooh, that's going to be really tough. Honestly, it wasn't that hard to raise funds for this church plant because I kind of got the feeling people were like just giving us money because they felt bad for us. Like, if you're willing to go there, we're not willing to go there. If you're willing to go there, we'll be happy to pay you to go there. Over and over again, I was hearing that. And so, we've seen so many people who have rushed in. They're going to make a difference. And what happens? They're overwhelmed. They're burned out. They tuck tail and they say, I'm headed back to where I came from. Or, we're fearful. We're like the disciples. We're scared to death. The culture's overwhelming. We're just going to kind of Hold up and be a good family and wait for Jesus to come back. We live in a tough day and time. We need God's grace to follow Him. We need what I love. John Tyson has described this in in New York City. He's currently planning in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen. And he said that we have to teach our people what it means to have a sustainable urgency. A sustainable urgency that we would be urgent for the gospel, that we would plead for God's manifest presence to show up in our lives daily, that we would plead for God's power in our lives and in the lives of the people who are around us, but that we would understand that we need God's rest and we need his grace. And that this is a difficult task that he's called us to. That we would move at a pace that we would say is human. And that we would model what it means to be human. Jesus didn't show up and in three days train his disciples. He didn't do it in three weeks and he didn't do it in three months. He did it in three and a half years. And he was Jesus. He was perfect in every way. A sustainable urgency. Or as Mumford and Sons would say, I will love with urgency but not with haste. That we would learn what that means. That we would lean on the Lord daily. But listen, look at verse 15. I don't want to miss this. Why does Jesus say to believers, he's talking to believers in this context, and he says, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Why does he say that to believers? They already believe. Thomas is ready to go give his life, right? Suffering oftentimes gives us the opportunity to believe. Because we struggle, even as followers of Jesus, we struggle to really believe. Can we just all admit that today? Like, Can we just all admit that we struggle to believe that God is powerful and that He can change our city and that He can change our families and that He can change our world? Can we just admit that we struggle to believe that? And if you, if you say, hey, I'm not struggling with that right now. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm on cloud nine. I'm ready to go change the world. Well, praise Jesus. Stay on the mountaintop as long as you can, but prepare for the valley. Because just live a little bit more of life. It is a struggle to believe And the truth is that sometimes God allows us to experience suffering so that we will call on His name. So that we will realize that our desperate dependence upon Him is that all we have is to believe. Now look with me at verses 17 through 32. Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Martha said to Him, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she had said this, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Suffering helps us to really live. Suffering, strangely enough, helps us to really live. I don't want to assume or read too much into this story, but I find it interesting that Martha is the one who walks two miles to meet Jesus, while Mary, the worshiper... The one who is found at Jesus' feet remains at home, grieving, sad, lonely, angry. Have you ever found yourself in that posture before? No longer willing to seek the Lord? Angry? Sad? Disappointed? Feeling as if you were left hanging there by God, like you had done your part and He didn't show up? Mary and Martha have very similar responses to Jesus. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. That's that's their similar response. And while we're tempted to maybe read more into Martha's response, like maybe Martha really believes, if you read ahead in verse 39, when Jesus gets ready to open the tomb, she's going to say, wait, he's been dead four days, it's going to stink. So she doesn't believe that he's alive and she doesn't believe that Jesus has the power to bring him back to life. Martha and Mary both believe there is life in Jesus through the resurrection when they die. Listen to this statement for a moment. They both believe that there is life in Jesus through the resurrection when they die. But I'm not so sure that they believe that there is life in Jesus and power in Him today. And I'm not so sure that we believe that either. And Jesus shows them something amazing. He shows them how suffering helps us to really live. Because in the midst of our heartache and disappointment, Jesus shows us that we can turn to Him and see that He is with us. Look at this last point in which we see that suffering enables us to see the glory of God. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I love this. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Then, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Suffering... Enables us to see the glory of God. Jesus was deeply moved and he was greatly troubled, is what the scriptures say. If you look at the literal translation of that, he was outraged, he was angry, he was indignant. I'm not really sure what indignant means. I've always heard the word. I kind of have an idea. I think my dad was indignant a couple of times, so I think I know what it means. Um, my kids would say triggered, that Jesus was triggered. Like, sometimes I'll just, like, get passionate about something, and they'll say, wow, Dad, dad's real triggered, and... It, Jesus wasn't triggered and he wasn't angry like in a raging sense of anger. But I think that the sadness and the grief and the loneliness that he saw these dear friends experiencing pushed anger up in his heart. And anger is a good thing because anger says, I'm going to pursue something. And Jesus in this moment is pursuing the fact that all is not right with the world. That we have to face suffering. That there are times in which, because we aren't the main characters in the story, that it seems as if we are in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And there are moments in our life where it seems that we are so thirsty and that God has left us alone. But in this passage, I love this story, because as Jesus in his anger pursues Mary and Martha there are so many ways that he could have responded but he doesn't rebuke them and he doesn't point his finger at them instead he weeps with them and Jesus teaches us that in the most painful moments of our life that not only is he with us but that he weeps for us The psalmist would say it this way in Psalm 56, 8. You've kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I can promise you that your suffering doesn't go unnoticed by Jesus. He knows and He cares. And we need to hear that and we need to be reminded that Jesus is with us even in the toughest of our moments. Even in the times where we say, you know what? The light at the end of the tunnel, I don't, see, I don't see a glimpse of it yet. I don't see a glimmer of it. That we would know that in the darkness that Jesus is with us. And that he's also sent his spirit to be in us. And that he has provided a community to be around us. And I don't want to leave without... Ending with verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Do you see the finish line in this passage? Do you see what Jesus is saying? That in the midst of your suffering, that if you will trust, that if you believe, that you will see my glory revealed. What does that really mean? In the book of John, this is the seventh miracle that Jesus has been building. I mean, the first one was cool, light Water turned into wine. Everybody's already partying. Everybody's already had enough that they say that their tongue's kind of numb. And, you know, the, I mean, the party's really kicked in. And it's like several days into the party. Go read it. I promise I'm not, not making this up. And, and the wedding coordinator comes and says, Jesus, man, you know how to throw a real party. Because you saved the best stuff until last. And Jesus turns all this water into wine. And then everybody gets in a big debate about, did it have alcohol in it? And what kind of wine was it? And they missed the whole point of the miracle. The whole point of the miracle, every miracle in John, is to point us to the miracle and to see the beauty of the miracle. And then that we would look through the miracle and see who Jesus is. And see the type of kingdom that He has come and that He has brought to us. And in this passage, this is the seventh, this is the magnifica of all the miracles. And Jesus is saying in this passage that if you believe, you will see the glory of God revealed. That the problem of all of humanity will be taken care of. That you will come to discover that there is life in Christ. And Mary and Martha have experienced part of that. But they only believe that life begins at the point of their physical death. At the point of resurrection. And Jesus is pointing us to Lazarus in order that we would see that his power is made known. And it is revealed now. That life isn't out there somewhere. But in the midst of our suffering, we come to find that Jesus' power is revealed. And that life begins today even in the midst of our suffering, that God is with us and that His glory is revealed right now. Do you believe that? I titled this message, Grace to Persevere. And I didn't just mean like grace just to make it, grace just to hold on, grace just to hopefully still be a Christian by the time we die. That's not at all what I mean. Most Christians, if you use a military illustration, most Christians live like they're good National Guardsmen. They're going to put their weekend in a month. They'll keep a little training up. That They'll be part-time soldiers. But the truth of the matter is that God has called each of us, not to be good National Guardsmen, God has called each of us to be special forces. He's equipped us in that. He's given us His Spirit. He said you have the Word of God. You have, you have prayer. And listen, I, I think that the last thing in the world that the church in Memphis needs or that Memphis as a culture needs is another cool church. The last thing in the world that Memphis needs and that our world needs is another group of people who are going to do church different. We have the Spirit of God. And we have the Word of God. And when we seek the Lord, we have the manifest presence of God and His power. And He promises us that it doesn't happen in a building like this, but that we have access to Him 24-7. Would we, as a community, begin... To lean into God and to say, God, even in the midst of my suffering, I will trust you. You say, how do you do that? I don't have time to tell you today, but I'm going to tell you next week. If you read the CBR Journal today, you need to read the Old Testament. I know it's tempting just to read the New Testament. But on the day that we read John 11, we also read Numbers 33. And you want to know what was fascinating about Numbers 33? It was boring to death. I mean, it started and it said, they camped here and then they got up and then they camped here and then they got up and then they camped here and then they got up. But whenever you see that, if you'll look, there's always a deeper meaning. Even in the most mundane of the Old Testament, God is revealing something. And all that was set up so that then it spoke of them going into the promised land. And if you went back and if you looked at verse 2 of Numbers 33, Moses said that God directed him to write down every step along the way of where they camped and where they went. Why? Because it was their story. And in every one of those titles of where they camped, they were remembering God's faithfulness. They were remembering stories of how God brought manna in the wilderness. They were remembering of how God made water come from a rock. They were remembering God's grace in the midst of their suffering. And they were being reminded that they had very little to do with the story, but that God's grace was evident and it was powerful and His presence was known. And as they looked back at the past... God had them write all those things down so that, why? So that they would have faith for the future. The only way that we have any idea what the future would be like is remembering the past. And my challenge to you today is that we would lean into the Lord by remembering God's grace and His faithfulness from our past. And we're going to look at Psalm 126 next week and learn more about how we can do that.